One of my greatest values and priorities for holding both is to foster community. I offer multiple support and process groups that are held from the vantage point of an occupational therapist who specializes in mental health and women's health. I call these my support circles. In May, the complete circle begins. This group is tailored to those deciding to end their secondary infertility journey without a second child. This will be a safe space to hold gratitude for motherhood as it is, even though it looks different than one might have pictured initially. The topic of this podcast aligns with the theme of this group. If this is relatable to you and you would like more information, please email me at allie at holdingbothllc.com. That is A-L-L-I-E at holdingbothllc.com or follow the link in the show notes to learn more. Hi, my name is Allie. Welcome to the Secondary Infertility Podcast. I'm an occupational therapist with training in mental health, women's health, and health literacy. I experienced secondary infertility and loss myself, and I know that there is complexity in holding both the joys of motherhood and the pain and yearning that comes along with infertility at the same time. I want to be a conversation catalyst for this very important topic. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome back to the Secondary Infertility Podcast. I'm your host, Allie, and today I am here with Catherine Dedarian-Kent. I reached out to her a year ago when this podcast was a dream, and she said yes immediately, and I've been really excited to finally sit down and connect um, and talk with her today. So Catherine is originally from Rhode Island, but now resides in Massachusetts with, with her wife, Leah, and her daughter, Riley. Riley's four years old. They also live with their four cats. As a family, they enjoy playing games, making homemade pizza, and taking trips to the library. Professionally, Catherine works for a national nonprofit in the workforce development space. Outside of work, she enjoys being the maker of spreadsheets for her family, the family's event planner, and the designated crafter. She devours mysteries and loves great podcasts. Catherine and Leah have been trying to conceive baby number two since December 2020. After conceiving Riley from one round of IUI, they were, as they say in Massachusetts, wickedly unprepared for infertility. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Allie. I'm really glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here. So my first question for you is, how did you find Holding Both? And when did you join the Holding Both community on Instagram? Yeah, that's a really good question. It was probably maybe a few months before you had reached out to me. And it was interesting because I hadn't felt a great place for me in the infertility community, mainly because we have a child. But at the same time, I didn't carry Riley. Leah carried Riley. And so when I came across holding both, it really it helped me feel definitely seen and feel like I had a community there in terms of like other people wanting to build their family and not being able to in the way that you had always envisioned. I'm glad that you found me and I'm really glad to hear that it made you feel comfortable to see other people trying to build their families and feeling validated and wanting that even though you already have another child. So next I wanted to talk about your fertility journey and where you started and about Leah carrying. Yeah. So we moved 
incredibly quickly, it felt like, in terms of we got married in 2017, been together since 20, like late 2012 or mid 2012, and got married in 17, bought a house in 18, and then January of 2019, we had our first IUI. And we live in the Boston area and went to a clinic that's very LGBTQ friendly. They have a program for folks who, you know, very straightforward, no medication, no monitoring. We did basically no testing other than like basic, you know, STD screening, XYZ, and tracking at home with OPKs. And we had always said that Leah would carry first. She is two years older than I am. And so I had a lot of feelings leading up to that IUI. Uh, and even afterwards, it was it was tough in my head kind of becoming a parent and not being the one carrying definitely threw me for a loop. But we were astounded when it worked the first time. And it's I think, amazing. And yeah, I, I look back on it now and go like, oh, my God. It's it's one of those things that like you have no idea how lucky you are until, right, we made the decision when Riley was maybe 10 months old to kind of like, okay, are we like ready to start this conversation? Okay. And, you know, for me, I have a couple other health issues in terms of like some thyroid stuff and hypertension. And so had to take some initial steps before we could even like get to the point of trying. And the thought never crossed my mind to like start at a fertility clinic. We just stayed at this one, you know, health clinic that they do the very straightforward, like kind of like no frills, if you will. And we had planned for an in-office IUI. And this is now 2020, right? COVID raging pre-vaccines. We had planned to be in the office and then ended up at the last minute, they said partners were not going to be allowed. So we were not going to be allowed in. So we made the decision to instead try it home. So we went, we got our vial, tried it home, didn't work. Right. We then did two more IUIs at that clinic before I was like, I don't know. I feel like we need to go somewhere else. So that kind of kickstarted. We went to our first clinic. We did ultimately, let's see, we did two IUIs at the first one, four at the second one, because in Massachusetts, thankfully, fertility coverage is is mandated. However, my insurance, you needed to do six IUIs before wow, they'll cover I, IVF. Is fertility, I know... You said in Massachusetts, fertility coverage is mandated. Does that include LGBTQ family building? So really interesting question, because for most folks, right, they have to try for a year, right? Straight couples. And, you know, previous or prior to them changing kind of the rules, it's like, oh, hey, we've been trying for a year. Let's get the coverage for same sex couples. Then things change. And so instead of trying for a year, their policy is you've got to have six IUIs with a provider like in an office. So our first okay. try at home actually didn't count. So okay. I had to do another one and then ultimately to have our six before we would be eligible for IVF coverage. Wow. So yeah. did you do six back to back to back? Ish. So we had tried in December, January, February. And then I think we had taken a little bit of time to do testing with our fertility clinic. At which point they were like, yeah, it seems like the timing wasn't maybe ideal. And then we just kept things pretty straightforward with Clomid. And I even I might have done a trigger for the first couple. And then we had tried Letrozole for one. So basically that took us to, I want to say about 
September when we had our regroup and finally said, okay, we're going to move forward with IVF. And now remember, too, because for our situation, we had decided to use the same sperm donor as we used mm-hmm. with our daughter, and we had purchased a certain amount. Mm-hmm. And every time, right, you're using a vial, so roughly in the range of like six to $700, maybe even a little bit more a vial, it adds up. And we had bought, I think, eight in the beginning, used one, so we had seven. At one point, it was like, are we going to be able to find more from the same donor? So it, lots of layers to all of that, right? In terms of, I felt like I'm going through all this sperm we had purchased to hopefully, you know, have enough for our entire however many kids we wanted to have. Absolutely. So can you tell me about IVF and getting started and what the IVF process looks like for same-sex couples in your situation? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, basically for me, it was like what most other folks have experienced, uh, because at that point I was still trying with my own eggs. And the one thing that was was hard and is still hard is the fact that when you're at a standalone fertility center, BMI is a factor. So you have to be under a certain BMI. And so that was something when we had our initial follow-up with my provider to talk about IVF, she's like, and you're like right at the edge, right? Of mm-hmm. being eligible to have surgery here. So that was like, you know, another layer of stress added on. That first go around, it was, I think, November of 21. And it was pretty straightforward. The day of the retrieval, though, I realized that I only had, I think, four eggs retrieved because they couldn't access safely one side. They couldn't access one of the ovaries. And I was devastated, like all this work, all this time. And We never, it's interesting, we never had the discussion about frozen versus fresh. It was just kind of like, we're going to do a fresh transfer, right? So you come off the heels of a retrieval, and then you kind of immediately prepare for a fresh transfer. And it was at that point when it was like, all right, we've got one that we feel good about. Like, I think the others had even stopped developing at that point. And that kind of kicked off what would be a pattern for me. Um, So eventually, you know, we did one more round of IVF at that clinic. And then I got really discouraged. That provider was just like, you're getting discouraged. You need to take time off. You need to lose weight. We think it's an intrinsic egg quality issue. So at that point, I had um, been a little bit active on Instagram. I hadn't really before. And so Mm -hmm. once we had gotten into that part of our journey, I did. I came across a doctor at another clinic. She'd probably be fine with me sharing her name. She's got a pretty big Instagram and TikTok presence. And I reached out, had, we had the initial consult with her and she was amazing, absolutely amazing. And we decided to switch clinics. So now if you're keeping score at home, that was our technically third, right? And definitely a different experience in terms of just a little bit further away, right? Something that no one really talks about a lot with IVF unless you've been in it for a long time is just the time investment, right? And then especially as someone who is already a mom and having a child where I've got to be able to like drop her off at daycare, run over to do monitoring and like keep my fingers crossed that traffic's on my side. And there's all these pieces about like, okay, and for the retrieval, I need to have Lee with me, obviously. And who's going to watch Riley? And how much do we tell people? So there's like all those other added elements when you already have a child and you're going through all of this. 
Absolutely. I mean, I can really relate to the daycare one or the childcare one in terms of my husband and I planning out our mornings, going through IVF and trying to determine, okay, daycare drop off first or monitoring first and they're in different directions and living in a place where you're trying to hope traffic is on your side and going to work. So yeah, I can I can really relate to that. Add such a different dimension when you have a child. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that too. Yeah. And then what and came next? So what came next is we did we did a round of IVF there. Had I think a decent response, and I had been put on what did we try? At one point, I was on metformin. I got off of that because I felt awful. And um, I think I definitely was on an acai supplement, CoQ10, you know, some of the standard stuff. We ended up having a fresh transfer. I think we did just one embryo at that point, complete negative. And oh, I skipped over completely the fact that like we've been doing fresh transfers, right? With all of these. Yes. This is your second. This is your second fresh transfer at this point. No. So at our first clinic, that first round of IVF, we did a fresh transfer. That one, I ended up basically having a chemical, super low beta, but we had nothing to freeze. So then had to do another entire round, fresh transfer, negative, didn't, you know, did not work. Our third, we tried a fresh transfer, again, negative. And then for our fourth, my provider had suggested a couple things. She suggested maybe it's an issue with the sperm. I'm like, I don't think so. I really think it's me. So we did change for that one. We changed donors. We bought a vial of a different donor, which, you know, it's hard because, again, underlying all of this, the mechanics of going and doing treatment is me. And now as a non-gestational parent of my first child, there was a lot I worked through. I, I started therapy before she was born to kind of work through of becoming a parent, not sharing a genetic connection, feeling really worried about how she would relate to me, how others would relate to me. We went through a lot in terms of like Leah's pregnancy and having to advocate for ourselves, having to speak up to a provider more than once, right, about making assumptions. I was with Leah for an ultrasound and it's like, oh, hey, is this your sister? And it's like, no. And it didn't even cross her mind, right? So I said, hey, like, want to yeah. give you some feedback here. N- next time it's, who is here supporting you today, right? Yeah. Oh, so, absolutely. <laughs> As a healthcare provider myself, I'm an occupational therapist part of the time in the hospital. And I've made it a point to enter a room and say, can you tell me who- who's here with you? And sometimes people will look at me funny in terms of they just say, well, my my spouse. But I think it's really good to practice that. And that's something that I really value. And it's it's hearing it come from the other side, you experiencing an assumption um, is really valuable to hear. So thank you for sharing that too. And I got pretty sassy in terms of like asserting myself right off the bat, like I'm going to hit first. So I had a shirt made that said, no bump, still pumped. My hashtag, my wife is pregnant. I love that. Yeah, I've seen those. I've seen those. I wore it actually when Leah, we ended up having an induction and I wore that. And then the nurses like loved the shirt. Then afterwards, I changed into my wife, wife, baby shirt that we had used um, throughout Leah's pregnancy, like taking pictures and stuff. Um, So kind of going back a bit to that 
at that point, I think fourth round of IVF going into it, kind of like eyes wide open. And we had, my doctor really wanted us to try a freeze all, right? So not doing a fresh transfer. And that we actually had really good responses. She was so enthusiastic, you know, had good numbers in terms of retrieval and fertilization, gave me a bonus update at day three, like things are looking great. For me, it's between days three and five, right? And if you know anything about IVF, usually they'll grow them out till seven if you're going to do a freeze all. It was Labor Day. I was home with Riley going out to my parents' house. Our deck at that point was under construction, so we were using our front door. I didn't grab my keys from where they usually are. Locked us out of the house. Oh, man. Had to call my parents because Leah had already left for work. She is a nurse and, you know, was on her way to work in Boston. So called my parents. My dad was on his way up. We're out at the picnic, out at the swing set in the backyard with Riley, and I get the call from my doctor. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I don't have good news. And I said, of course you don't. Nothing had made it. We had nothing, nothing oh. to free, nothing to biopsy, nothing to freeze. And I swear to you, it started raining as soon as she and I ended the phone call. It started raining. Wow. Wow. Um, That's powerful. Yeah. And I, I sat there and, you know, you've got a, a little person right next to you looking at you. And so Riley and I had my bag of stuff with her, thankfully. And we sat. She's got a little clubhouse and this picnic table underneath it covered. So we sat there and she's drawing in one of her like the magic marker coloring books. It's a Daniel Tiger one and starts <laughs> singing one of the songs from Daniel Tiger. The when something seems bad, turn it around. Oh find something good and i swear to you i almost felt burst into tears i have a video of her actually singing that like that day oh uh, my gosh that's so sweet i feel like having a child to have these sweet moments it is such a holding both thing you know yeah. it's like the moments are so heartbreaking and hard and then having that at the same time is so special doesn't always make it easier, I'd say, in terms of my own personal experience, but it makes it feel it's it's healing in some in some ways. And feel it when you said that I got goosebumps because it's just like how how perfect. I mean, I, you'll remember that moment forever, I'm sure. Oh, it is it is burned in there. And you know, that's something else that I think a lot about is so I we've been trying now for three years. Riley is four. For the vast majority of her life, I have been going through this. We've been going through this journey of trying to have another child. And Leah and I are both one of three. And it's been very clear that we've wanted to have at least more than one. Leah will say three. I'll be like, I think we're going to do. And to have all that really challenged and kind of like, you may just have one. And I think it's something that she and I are both still at this point not ready to accept I've had conversations with my therapist about like, what's the line in the sand? And it's really hard to even approach that conversation. Everything is so, it's so tough. It is so tough. But at the same time, I just think about how, again, for most of Riley's life, I've been going through one treatment or another, super hormonal and rushing and trying to fit in all these other things. While at the same time trying to focus on the fact that, like, this is her childhood. And I actually connected with another mom on Instagram. We both have daughters right around the same age and found a lot of kindred spiritship in that in that person because so many folks, you feel bad, right? You feel bad 
yearning for another when folks haven't even had one. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other thing that folks also don't maybe fully appreciate for same sex couples is that we're never going to just accidentally get pregnant. Right. Everything has to be so deliberate and so planned out and timed and carved out. Uh, and the fact that, like, in three years, right, I we had, what, 11 or 12 tries? You know, if we were a straight couple, we could try it every month, right, theoretically. So I think that's the other piece that isn't the same, right? That's definitely something that's different for, for the same-sex couple is that you are much more restricted in terms of that. And I think there's folks out there in the LGBTQ community that are like, no, like, you can try it home, this and that. And it's like, yes. And then that is great when you are fertile. But if you are yeah. not, if you are both, they call it social infertility, right? The fact that we can try all we want. We're not getting pregnant together. You have that on top of what really became apparent for me is I am at the time I was 32 and had really bad egg quality. And it's like mm-hmm. I wanted an answer so badly, right? Is why? Why are my eggs such a poor quality? And then the other question is the the Hashimoto's that I have, like thyroid issues. Like, what does that play into it? And do you open the door to go into the reproductive immunology phase of things? And, you know, I had made the decision not to. Um, mm-hmm. Tough. So ultimately, to kind of bring us back, we had done that freeze all, nothing, you know, didn't get anything out of it. Made the decision to kind of do like a, Hail Mary cycle. So I was on Omnitrope, right? The human growth hormone. And, you know, we just threw the kitchen sink at it, basically. Had the same result, right? Not great results, nothing to freeze, another failed transfer. And then at that point, really, I had reached like my benefit limit to the point where Through, through your job, through my insurance. Yep. They had said, a dollar limit for both like medication and then another bucket for procedures. And this is something too that I like preach to folks now is like understand your benefits because you won't find out until you get a $14,000 bill that you were not expecting. Yeah. I mean, that's so valuable for people to be aware of. Um, I remember when I began the IVF process, I had a coworker who um, had gone through multiple rounds of IVF before me. And she, I'm so, so thankful for her. She gave me the heads up and said, you know, our our benefits have this max. I reached it super quick because I used a specific pharmacy that the IVF medications were way more expensive than the alternative, but I didn't think I had an option to shop around. So like you said, I think it's so important to be aware and educate yourself, even though it's so hard to do and so time consuming, especially when you're a mom. But yeah, when you hit the max, it it it's a big deal. It is. It is a huge deal. And I also, you know, there's been multiple instances throughout this journey where I've like forced myself to take a step back and kind of say like, all right, I acknowledge that I have a tremendous amount of privilege here in terms of access to coverage through insurance for multiple rounds, right? And the fact that I'm able to fight about, you know, getting more things covered is a privilege. And I've realized, too, that, like, this is the first time pretty much in my life that something hasn't gone my way. 
for and working now, hard. Yeah, yeah. For working hard, right? That piece also navigating systems that weren't designed for you, right? I experienced this back when we were planning our wedding and I was the person who was like deliberately saying like we're a same-sex couple and if their forms were not friendly, like I redid the packet for our DJ stuff because it was all bridegroom. I retyped the entire thing. Wow. Um, That's also amazing that they were open to you doing that. Oh, they were. I Oh, I did it myself because I was okay, like, okay. no, I I love your I love your directness and like your like you said, advocating for yourself. And I know I I can only imagine that, especially in a journey like a fertility journey where you're already in a vulnerable spot and you're already in a heartbreaking spot that advocating for yourself has to be very tiring, I would guess. It is. It really is. And then on top of it, right, you're like forcing yourself to go through these systems that, frankly, especially at these clinics, are designed to just push through as many people as possible. Right. And even though we had a wonderful provider, the system that she was working within, right, like they're trying to push as many people through. And I I will never forget her, though, because she was just so compassionate and just she really set the tenor for me in terms of like what it means to be a really compassionate provider even now she'll still answer my questions and I I so appreciate that um and also when we were hit with that surprise bill because I like hit my limit after that cycle it was a total miss on their finance team that they hadn't seen that hadn't covered that in the lead up to the cycle so we ended up you know having it so that they honor the insurance rate for the balance of what we owed. So it went from like 14,000 to like two grand maybe, which is amazing. I mean, it's still, it's still a, a big chunk of money. And I also think that I'm glad that you acknowledged to the privilege of having coverage for IVF or having coverage for fertility treatments, because I do feel similar. Uh, many women in the holding both community and, People I've talked with uh, don't have any coverage at all. And so I always think it's very valuable for those of us that can say, you know, holding both in that way, too, is that it does take a big stressor off to have coverage. It doesn't Mm -hmm. change the heartbreak. It doesn't change specific things, but it is a big deal to have coverage. And so I'm glad that you acknowledge that, too. Yeah, 100%. And I wasn't done in terms of advocating and also like the hoops we'd have to jump through with insurance, right? So we had that final round of IVF. We had a regroup. And really at that point, you know, my provider was like, we've done, we've tried, you have tried everything. No one can say that you haven't tried everything. And she was so reassuring just in, you know, at that point we were headed towards reciprocal kind of, we had made the decision that, all right, clear that my eggs are not it so let's let's move forward with leah's and now the thing about that is it was a standalone clinic bmi limits we had to switch clinics again okay so and um you're talking about using leah's eggs in the bmi limit okay yep okay so for folks who may not be familiar with reciprocal ivf this is i will say fairly new but i could be wrong in that but basically a way for both partners in a same female same sex relationship to play a role in carrying a child so one person would go through the re- the stim and re- retrieval process 
And the other person, now it depends on where you are. Some folks would do, you know, frozen transfers. So they'd freeze the embryos and then get the other partner all ready for a transfer. In our case, they actually, it was really interesting, had me like sync up to a point where I had to be, I think, 10 days ahead of Leah. And it was a lot of, yeah, getting things all straightened out. And that even took a while to like get us to the point where we were approved for it. The point being, back to insurance, my insurance policy wouldn't cover reciprocal. It is not something that's usually covered by insurance. Most people see it as like an elective thing. Now, my wife's insurance actually has a specific rider for same-sex couples where there aren't any restrictions on it. Like you don't have to do X amount of IUIs first. You can just do reciprocal IVF, which was pretty incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. What that meant, though, is that we had to pick up her insurance and we we kept me and my daughter on and then I had secondary. And if anyone is also like out there navigating multiple insurance plans, it is like the literal worst sometimes because billing and even now, like months, almost a year later, they're still trying to figure out some billing stuff because of our multiple insurances. But we we had kind of made that decision. So it wasn't until April of 23 that we got to do Leah's first retrieval. So we went from fall, right? I had my last, my last retrieval and transfer in November. And it wasn't 2022. Of 2022. Okay. And then it wasn't until like spring of 23 where everything was all situated with everything at the new clinic and just everything moving so slowly that we're able to do that. And her first retrieval, the poor thing, just lots of different complications. And then she actually, the during her recovery, was in an immense amount of pain. And I was like, this is not, this was not my experience. What is going on? It turns out, you know, when they are doing their retrieval, sometimes there is fluid, blood that will travel and that can cause an immense amount of pain. Now she had a C-section with Riley and she's like, this is worse. This is so, like she had to sleep in a recliner a couple nights. Like, wow. It was wild. It was absolutely wild. And I had really made an assumption that, all right, we're going to switch to Leah's eggs. Everything is going to be fine. And, you know, ultimately kind of what we've learned is Leah's body doesn't love IVF, right? So we had, I forget how many that, um, that first round, but not many. We ended up with, uh, we transferred two. And this was right around the beginning. Yeah. So end of April, beginning of May. I had actually kind of had some symptoms, right? We had, and I usually wouldn't test early. I know that's a whole thing with folks if they're going to test early or not. I'm team not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we ended up testing the day before my beta because Leah was going to be working that day. So we tested before and we had a positive. Wow. And I had never... I had never for myself seen a positive home pregnancy test. So we shared with my sister-in-law who had shared with us, you know, a month, a few weeks before that she was pregnant again with their second. And I told my parents because I really close with my parents. And then the next day I went for blood work and my baby came back at 16. Okay. 16. 
right? So very, very low. They wanted me to, you know, continue with the meds, go back, you know, a day or two later, I went back and went to 25. So at that point, you know, I, they, well, let's just keep it. And then we had surgery for Riley. <laughs> she had to get her tonsils out and new ear tubes put in. Oh my So goodness. that day, you know, it was surgery. And then Leah stayed with her that night in the hospital. And the next day I had to get up early to come from home across the city to go to a different hospital to get my blood drawn again. I was in the hospital room with Riley and Leah when I got the call from the nurse of like, well, they want you to like keep. I said, I'm done. This mm-hmm. is not going to happen. I am stopping the meds. OK, well, let me get approval. And so we stopped the meds that day and I had to go back for more draws until my beta- my HCG went down to zero. So oh, I was I'm so like, sorry. Thank you. It, the feeling of just pure elation that we had finally like it worked something something finally worked and then just to have the rug completely pulled out from under you was just was horrible this was i was on my sabbatical from work at the time having reached my six-year anniversary and i'm so glad i was like i i had really thrown everything at this i was in acupuncture and i was going to yoga and i had this moment of like man it really doesn't matter what i do it doesn't matter how hard i try how hard i push it's all up to chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was definitely it was definitely hard when we went for a regroup. One of the first suggestions our provider had for us was to look into donor eggs, and it hit both Leah and I very hard. Of like, whoa, we are not there yet. Like we literally have just tried once, right? So we ultimately had to go through another rigmarole with insurance they didn't they initially denied it because it was going to be my seventh cycle and really low chance Um, long story short all of it kind of got sorted out and we ultimately did get another chance to do another round of reciprocal um and so where timeline wise where are you in the year timeline wise that was so we began that process in like late July because and they they wanted to push us out even further. But I pushed back like, absolutely not. So the hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. Right. My gosh, it just awful. So then I was, you know, when you're doing reciprocal and you are the one that's going to have the transfer, I was basically on birth control to get me to a certain point, And then they keep you in a holding pattern while your partner is going through stims. Now, I've talked to other people who've done reciprocal, and that's not been their experience. Like, again, they've done a frozen transfer, which looking mm-hmm. back, I'm like, Phew. but we didn't have anything to freeze from Leah's first retrieval, right? So we had to start all over again. And then this last one that we did, we were on vacation with my family. We go, we've been going every the end of the summer for the last few years, Um I had to go get my blood work done about an hour away where I could find a lab. And then it was While you like, were on vacation? While we are on vacation, yeah. And now, like, on these vacations, it's like, you know, you're bringing the the progesterone shots. Yeah. And, and that's been, like, the life for the last couple of years, right, is, like, this is just permeating every part of our life. So it 
Yeah, that was really hard. I went, I did the blood work and then waiting and waiting, waiting for it to come through. Didn't come through till the next day. So it wasn't like I got my same day results, right? Yeah, day feel a day can feel so long. I feel like it's not a regular 24 hours when you're waiting for that kind of thing. No. And then to just not know when it was coming. And then also because it wasn't at my like provider, wasn't within the hospital, it was, you know, not going to be a phone call from someone I knew it was just going to be like log into a portal and see it. And unfortunately, that transfer didn't work. Like not even a low beta, just nothing. Gosh. That's that's really tough. So that was July so that was September by the time. Yeah. So September 2023. And then I remember just kind of at that point, like feeling really numb. Leah felt a lot of responsibility is too strong of a word, but she was really beating herself up too. Because at that one, we had only had, I think, three eggs. We tried a different protocol with that one. It was a min stim. Her AMH is lower. We didn't know that until, you know, we had begun the re- the reciprocal and all the testing. So there's a theory out there, right? Instead of like the max doses, you do minimum, you aim for quality over quantity. So again, that it was kind of like, well, we had nothing. We didn't even know if we were going to have anything to transfer with three. I was at acupuncture, didn't know was this is our pre-transfer acupuncture, had my acupuncture nap, woke up and then had a missed call at a voicemail. And they said, hey, all three fertilized, all three immature, all three fertilized or two out of the three had fertilized and I just like about fell over. I'm like, we have something to transfer. So I felt incredibly lucky. And then, you know, just the the ups and downs Mm -hmm. in this whole journey is just, it's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. I mean, celebrating. Did you, when you found out you had the two, did you and Leah give yourself a chance to just celebrate that, that win? Or did you, were you looking forward and just... I think it was just like we got to exhale, right? Because for a minute there, it was like, I didn't think we were going to be able to transfer. And then part of me was like, does that mean I'm done? Like, is that it? I don't get another chance. And because we had been like, all right, we're going to try this one more time, right? We're going to try reciprocal one more time before I stop and have Leah try. Because, you know, it's not until you talk about it that you're like, wow, you've been through a lot. And it wouldn't be till I talked about it with somebody that I hadn't seen in a long time, a really dear friend from that I used to work with. She's like, you've been through a lot. Like most people can, would not have handled that. And, you know, you might relate, like when you're in it, you're just doing it. It's one foot in front of the other. It's, you know, one more appointment. It's one more shot. It's whatever it is. Um, And then it's not until you take a step back and go like, this is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, then, I mean, you turn, I feel like you're in survival mode and you don't really realize how much you've endured. Or when you're talking to someone, like you said, like your friend or talking to someone who hasn't done IVF themselves or hasn't been through infertility themselves. For you or for, I'm personally speaking, I remember just thinking, well, this is just what you do. You just go on to the next thing. You just go on the next thing. Uh, and then to have someone with the vantage point of lo- outside looking in saying to you, which it can be so validating, but saying to you like, whoa, you've been through, you've been through a lot. I'm sure that that had to feel good to have your friend say that. I mean. It it definitely, it took me a minute to kind of like accept the, it wasn't praise, but it was more like that validation, that recognition, like you said. And 
also just to realize the impact that it had on my life, right? So I said I've been with my company going on almost seven years. And for the last few, right, since COVID, it's been, okay, we're dealing with pandemic, we're dealing with infertility. You know, how much more can we pack into this without saying like, enough is enough. And I also felt super stuck, right? I felt very stuck where I was professionally because I'm like, all right, my company's got great maternity leave, right? Four months. I should just hold on until I have a baby. And then that didn't happen. And then it didn't happen again and again. And then it's like, okay, well, I've got really good insurance. I should stay and hold on to that. And, or, well, you know what? I've got flexibility right now to kind of do what I need to do. I know the work I'm doing. It's not rocket science. That's been really hard to the point where like, you know, even now I feel like I've kind of gotten myself out of the fog a bit now that we have moved on to IUIs with Leah to even just kind of have the wherewithal to say, what do I really want? Where do I want to go? Am I staying here just because I've been stuck and it's been familiar and not hard? So those are the things also that folks that haven't gone through maybe multiple rounds of IVF and haven't had multiple things not work, that you feel stuck in so many ways. And it's like when you make the decision to come off the roller coaster, those feelings, that that doesn't automatically resolve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The healing process. Yeah. And it's hard, too, because I, I also have talked a lot with folks about feeling like, all right, first I had to let go of the fact that this wasn't going to happen easily. Okay, I can do that. Okay, it's not going to happen without medication. Okay, that's fine. All right, well, now you're going to do IVF. Okay, that's fine. I will do IVF and I will be pregnant. I will have a baby. All right, so now it's not going to be your eggs. Okay, I can handle that. It'll be, I will carry. And then the last thing to get like taken away was, and you're not going to carry either. And it's been a lot of therapy. It's been a lot of talking with Leah and others. But I I also don't think that's something that's ever going to go away for me. The fact that I have always seen myself as someone who would carry a baby and that would just be part of my story to now it won't be. It's pretty clear that like unless something drastically changes, it's not going to be part of my story. But that doesn't make me any less of a mom. It It is something that has shown me that I am way stronger than I thought. I'm really stubborn to the point where maybe a rational person would have been like, maybe we realize that this isn't happening. We don't torture ourselves continuously, right? But you don't know it until you're in it, how you're going to react and what you're going to be called or feel compelled to do or not do. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it was so powerful to just hear you say, First, I think this, then this, then this, and then acknowledging that it's going to be a forever grieving process. I mean, I'm sure that the grieving process will look different as as you move through your life and as you move through motherhood. But I think it's also so valuable for if and when you decide to tell Riley one day about about things for her to know what her moms have endured. I think that's I feel like I'm going to cry. I feel like that's so powerful. Like, I feel like she, how lucky for her. Yeah. And it's, it's so, I thought people, you know, that provider that I got really close with, she just was so helpful in saying like, you know, 
this next baby that you all hopefully have is going to know just how hard you all fought. But I do, I look back and I'm like, how has Riley been affected by this? Like, have I not showed up how I should have for her? Or is it like we have tried so hard to give you a sibling because again, I have siblings and that's, I want that for her so badly. Um, But I also, I do feel guilty for, you know, the resources that we've been through and we've used and we could have done things differently. And I just hope she one day will hear the joy she brought uh, during some of the like worst times I've ever been through. And, you know, because when you have a little one looking back at you, like you got to pick up and keep going. And just she's like the best kid ever in terms of <laughs> pushing and just getting you to realize certain things about yourself, right? And challenging you as a parent. Um, and I, I hope to God that she doesn't have to deal with fertility issues. Oh but if gosh, she does, yeah. I just, I want her to know that we would be there every step of the way for her. And I, I educating her about things and, there's just so much more that I know that I can give to her because of what we've been through. And that's also been something that I've tried to take with me is like, I learned a lot of lessons in the last three years. And I've also, you know, you become a quasi med student and <laughs> claims adjuster, whatever. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. To the extent where like I've advocated with my own organization so that they now have the same writer that Leah's company has so that they will now cover reciprocal IVF for the folks that work where I work. That's that's incredible. I'm sure people to come in years to come will thank you, even if they don't know it was you specifically that advocated. That I'm that's going to help a lot of people. I'm sure. Yeah. To change pace a little bit as yeah. we wrap up here, I know I'm. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> gotta have some tears. It wouldn't be fertility if we didn't have tears. I right? know. <laughs> Gosh, I, I, I truly believe what they say about the worst club and the best members. I've met so yeah. many incredible people through infertility, and none of us want to be here. It's like yeah. none of us. That being said, the second best thing is that we all met, that we all connect to each other, and we all yeah. can understand each other in, in, in ways that our journeys look so different. And I, f- I always say, even if there are some similarities, everybody's journey and everybody's story and how everybody experiencing, experiencing, oh my goodness, how everybody experiences things is so different. I can really relate to you in terms of going through IVF during the pandemic. I feel like that added a whole different dimension. And I feel really connected to people when I, when I learn that they have been through infertility IUI IVF during the pandemic it's just such a different yeah. experience yeah but to change pace a little bit too as we wrap up i wanted to talk about uh, the creative things that you do for yourself outside of motherhood and the ways that you feel most like yourself outside of motherhood you know i know motherhood's so important to us all um going through secondary infertility but what makes you you and what do you love to do outside of motherhood for a long time, I'm like, could I tell you what that was? However, when we began kind of the fertility journey and the kind of ups and downs and waiting, it felt like with every failed cycle, I picked up a new hobby, 
right? So, oh wow, I love that. <laughs> did you keep tra- I, did you keep track? Like, I would love to see a list if you if you feel so inclined to like bullet point it out or reflect on it because that's pretty. I mean, I think that's really powerful and pretty cool. Yeah. So I started out with uh, very simple like sewing embroidery projects, and then now have gotten to the point where. Really more for a way of like, I'm making something for the nursery, right? And then it became like, this is something I'm doing to help keep my hands busy, scroll less, think less. Um, so I picked up hand embroidery and it's something now like I've, I've done um, like a birth announcement almost for both my niece and my nephew that have been born since we've been trying, but I've done lots of other projects like that. I picked up so like that was one phase and that I went through another where I was painting like wooden figurines from the store, right? Doing some of that. And then another phase where I got into the cozy mystery genre. I don't think I said cozy when I was introducing you, but cozy mystery, I'm really intrigued. What is what does that mean exactly? So lots of books I know will read as a form of escapism, and I don't remember exactly why I picked up this book, but the author is Ellie Alexander, and her series I just, like, fell into, and she had so many books, I devoured them, right? So I think this was, like, 2022 when, like, I jumped into that hyperfixation, and then I just kept moving through authors, but the genre is, like, You've got the the protagonist works in a bakery or they're this or they're that. So, yes, there's murder and all that, but it's so cozy and nice (laughs) characters and a little bakeries and coffee shops. Right. Exactly. So it's something that like I still am picking up different new authors because I've read through a lot of them. They're very formulaic. Right. But it's predictable. It's going to end. So yeah. say what you will about how that, you know, we're <laughs> processing our trauma right through this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that form of escapism has been great. And then you know, the other one is podcasts, right? I love to listen to podcasts. There's a bunch that I like that are all kind of connected, similar hosts and whatnot. And it's things that like take me out of where I am and what I'm doing. And I think that's been like yeah. the common thread is like trying to figure out different ways to feel fulfilled when like you know other parts of your life are feeling really in flux i think the part that i'm still trying to figure out is how i'm taking care of myself in this realm right you know going through fertility treatments is really hard on your body it's hard on your mind and i'm still in therapy and i am right now in the throes of really trying to figure out how to physically take care of myself about you know working out and eating better and all of that And for a while, it's kind of like, you know, well, my body hasn't done what I needed it to do. Why should I care about it? And that's that's hard. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that. I've heard that time and time again. And I've also heard people say, okay, I'm my line in the sand is drawn, but I still have PCOS or still have Hashimoto's or I still have endometriosis and I'm still me. And I need to figure out how I'm going to feel my best, even though I drew my line. I'm not trying anymore. I want to still manage this condition or I want to still like feel my best. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm still, you know, I'm trying to figure out there's a lot of things that I'm working through in terms of like, who am I outside of being a mom? And also right now, like being a mom is a big part of who I am. And I've in yeah. many ways, like I throw myself into like, th- that's a really good example I didn't share earlier, but 
Riley has her birthday is in early October. And so for the last few years, I have thrown myself into they're not extravagant, but they're just we go in on a theme. And, you know, this last year it was mermaids before it was Minnie Mouse. And before that, it was Taco Tuesday right when she was two. And it's silly. And people will say, like, oh, God, that's so extra. But it's been a distraction. It's been something to throw myself into. And every year it's like, okay, maybe this will be the year that I don't have to do. So, so far that hasn't been the case. Yeah, but I feel like to a certain extent that has to also bring you so much joy. Even like you said, it might be a distraction too. But I think it's so important and valuable to focus on the joy because everybody knows how hard infertility can be. And to, to focus on things like you said, the cozy mysteries, the extravagant birthday parties, I don't. I think that's I think that's amazing, and maybe the the extravagant, creative, awesome birthday party will just continue on well past these childbearing years. And yeah. how special too for her! That's I really hope cool. so. I hope she looks back and kind of goes like, "Wow!" Like I'm sure when she's a teenager, it'll be like, "Oh my god, mom!" Like it's so <laughs> embarrassing. But I'm like, girl, at the time you were over the moon. That we did it, and it does. It brings me a lot of joy. You know, I've committed to, since her first birthday, making her cake. And my mom and I have made it together for the last few years. And now we've started to make my niece's birthday cake every year. And so just building up these traditions. So, you know, again, Allie, that's why you're holding both like that. I can't tell you how many times I've thought about this juxtaposition of both heart and pain but then these moments that i am cultivating for her that leah and i are cultivating for her and being able to literally hold the two in your brain at the same time like it stretches you in ways that you're like i didn't know if i would be able to survive doing this but at the same time it is such a privilege to be her mom and and throw myself into that joy when you know it Leah and I talk about this a lot, like anybody can have a kid, right? And not everybody should when you think about, (laughs) you know, people. It's hard to conceive of not delighting in your child. But there are folks out Mm -hmm. there that feel like that. And, you know, again, we're both one of three. We went through, you know, our parents had us relatively close together And like things were hard. We have three kids like things are hard. And so we're doing things differently than what we grew up in. And that in and of itself is very different. Um, And I think what we've really realized is like we can enjoy being parents. We can also want to have another baby. And we're having conversations now. You know, we're still trying. We've got one more IUI for Leah before she'll qualify for IVF. And I, I really hope that it can happen. But we've talked a lot about you know, fostering or, you know, other ways to build our family. And, you know, for me, the longer we go through this, the more I'm like, that may be what our future looks like. And I know that we will, you know, love whoever comes into our life in whatever way it is. That's beautiful. Thank you so, so much for being on. I I really appreciate everything you shared and I love this conversation. So Tell our uh, listeners, if if you feel so inclined, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, sure. So we have our Instagram. It's two mama bears. And it's definitely, it's been an outlet for us still deciding what it'll be like. 
before or, you know, now that we're in a different chapter. But that's where we're kind of chronicling things. And I'm always happy to chat with folks, share our experience, answer questions, give me recommendations, because I wish I had made that platform sooner so I could have connected with other folks because it was tough to find someone else, right? And so, hey, listen, if you're out there, you are a non-gestational parent of a child already. You yourself are going through fertility. Um, that is such a niche area that, like, please reach out to me because I'd love to talk to you. Um, if you're in the throes of it right now, just know that you are not alone. I have really thought a lot about, you know, do I share, do I not? And every time I've made myself vulnerable, I've just been met with a lot of support and a lot of love back. So if you're someone that you feel like, you know, no one's in my situation, girl, I'm going to tell you that really I couldn't find anybody else, right? A lot of times the same-sex relationships, same-sex female relationships, one person wants to carry, the other doesn't. And that's not our, that's not our dynamic. So it's a, it's a different dynamic. And I, again, I'm happy to connect with anybody. But again, if you are someone who is in that situation, please message me. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so, so much for being here. You're welcome. I hope you found this episode of the Secondary Infertility Podcast to be meaningful. One of the best ways to support me and my show is to rate and leave a review. For more secondary infertility content, please come find me at Holding Both on Instagram. That's H-O-L-D-I-N-G-B-O-T-H on Instagram. Thank you.